Good morning and welcome to Convocation. This morning, Keith Graber Miller will be speaking and I've gotten to know Keith through being in his colloquium and other classes, working as, as his teaching assistant. And Keith has taught in the Bible and religion department since 1993. He's also led a variety of SST units. He did his doctoral dissertation looking at the intersection of religion and politics and is currently working at the writing and editing of a number of other books. Um, as long as Keith keeps his words brief enough, we're going to have some time for discussion and response after he shares. So keep some questions in mind for that. And let's welcome Keith this morning. Nearly all of us here, I suspect, remember where we were five years ago today during the tragic unfolding events of September 11, 2001. Even those of us who were living elsewhere in the world likely recall hearing of the devastation on U.S. soil that day, a horrific loss, not unlike that which occurs with some regularity in war-torn countries around the globe, not unlike the attack on Pearl Harbor 65 years ago, but unique to those of us born here after World War II. Thousands dead at the World Trade Center towers in New York, and at the Pentagon in Washington, and in a field in southwestern Pennsylvania. That morning, I was in the final throes of preparing a lecture for my ethics and morality class when the reports began coming through the airwaves and the internet. Still stunned, I met my ethics students at 9.30 with a television in front of the classroom, and for the next two hours, we watched the towers explode and collapse and plummet into the streets in the astounding footage that has now seared its way into our psyches. The classroom was nearly silent except for the reporter's words. Some wept, some were fearful, Early accounts suggested that other planes were headed for the cities spread across the country. Later that afternoon, we processed the day's events with our nine-year-old, who'd been shielded from any news by his teachers at his elementary classroom. Throughout this, the evening, we remained riveted to the television, hearing the emerging descriptions of the possible hijackers and their motives, and the germinal calls for retributive justice we'd entered a new world, a world of suspicion and terror, smart bombs and collateral damage, freedom fries rather than French fries. We know well the events that ensued in the following months. First was our relatively brief war with Afghanistan, where we believed al-Qaeda was based even though the 19 hijackers were primarily from Saudi Arabia. Then came the elusive search for Osama bin Laden, followed by brewing U.S. antagonism toward Iraq, false claims of links between Iraq and the events of September 11th, and our long and loping war on Iraqi soil. As a nation, we are daily reminded of the tragic violence we continue to do and the gut-wrenching violence that is done to our troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. In nearly every day's paper, we read of another five killed in a car bomb, 20 blown to bits in a police recruiting line, an extended family wiped out in the quest for purported terrorists. In the weeks immediately following September 11th, small pockets of U.S. citizens 
some pacifists, some cautious just war theorists, some veterans and military officers began raising their voices for a reasoned, moderate, multilateral response to the violence of September 11th. But these voices were a minority. By late September, the Goshen News carried a banner headline that said, dissenting voices not welcome in a flag-waving chorus across America. The military invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq have revealed significant differences among many U.S. Christians. Some Christians have too fully imbibed and embraced American patriotism, too uncritically accepting the rhetoric of the Christian right, while others have perhaps too comfortably embraced the left or settled for the complacency of relatively obscure and secure small-town Midwest America. Divisions have been evident within congregations and across denominations regarding appropriate Christian responses. Can we be faithful to Jesus, whom we call the Prince of Peace, hold our government accountable, and still acknowledge gratitude for our country? Can we be both Christians and patriots? Because we are both citizens of this world and of the world to come, I believe God is calling us to do just that. Traditionally, Mennonites' peace position has been rooted in the biblical portrayal of Jesus' way of love and his willingness to suffer on the cross. Mennonites have been less optimistic about human nature than some liberal pacifists of the early 20th century. They've instead believed simply that Jesus calls his followers to be nonviolent. Sometimes this pacifism works, and sometimes it doesn't. But in the Anabaptist tradition, as in many other religious traditions, faithfulness takes priority over effectiveness. Faithfulness is near the heart of Mennonites' theological and ethical thinking, with the deep, confident, persistent hope and belief that God has structured the world in such a way that faithfulness also will be, eventually, effective. Partly as a result of this pacifist past, Mennonites have not developed a particularly nationalistic or patriotic spirit in the way those terms are generally understood by in the U.S. Mennonites nearly always have experienced tensions in the countries in which they've lived. Frequently they've had to emigrate because of persecution or lack of religious freedom. On our campus, we fly a U.S. flag alongside a United Nations flag just north of the Union. But we don't sing the national anthem at athletic or inaugural or academic events. Mennonite ethicist J.R. Burkholder once responded to a critic by noting that what the critic had called anti-Americanism could better be described as more than Americanism. Pacifists identify with the entire human community and the long sweep of history, writes Burkholder. For the pacifist, citizenship in a particular nation state is just not that important. She cares less about national interests than about the well-being of the people of all nations. Burkholder adds that pacifists at their best consciously adopt a more global worldview than most Americans. They wear tribal identifications lightly and see themselves as global citizens. In the midst of the wars against Afghanistan and Iraq, among the pro and anti-war bumper stickers pervasive in our region of the Midwest that you've likely seen is one stating, God bless the whole world, no exceptions. The question of citizenship is essentially a question of competing loyalties, all of which may demand our wholehearted and therefore perhaps contradictory allegiance. 
For believers, we are citizens of a particular nation. We are global citizens, and we are Christians. Pacifist Christians traditionally have viewed themselves as first and foremost disciples of Christ and citizens of God's reign, then citizens of the world, and finally citizens of a given country. In contrast to that ordering, during times of warfare, many Christians believe that national citizenship should trump all other loyalties. For pacifists, this is not possible, especially if we are citizens of a powerful nation that's frequently at war. The rise of patriotism during periods of warfare with national symbols springing up where no flag has flown before is evidence of what sociologists call civil religion, a religion that remains relatively dormant in peaceful times. Civil religion pulls together disparate religious and ethnic groups into a cohesive whole by finding a common rallying point and then often marginalizing those who don't fully board the patriotic train. Many peace-loving Christians continue to feel deeply ambivalent about the language of citizenship and about the rise of wartime patriotism. Without question, U.S. pacifists need to acknowledge both the ways in which we benefit by living in the U.S. and the responsibility we share for our nation's action through our payment of taxes, our silence, and our uncritical enjoyment of the benefits of U.S. citizenship. But I want to continue looking for ways to be creatively Christian and creatively U.S. American, drawing on the best from both traditions. Among the specific postures and practices that may allow conscientious, peaceable Christians to work at God's calling at this point in history are the following seven. First of all, we need to maintain our humility as we dialogue with our neighbors and speak to national leaders. All of us must admit that we do not have quick or easy answers for responding to complex 21st century world conflicts. When we disagree with decisions our political leaders make, we must respond in a more gracious manner than our natural inclinations might normally take us. As good citizens of the United States who anticipate with hope God's reign, we should respect and pray for our country's decision makers, even while we challenge and critique those decisions when necessary. Secondly, we should listen to those who believe differently than we do. We need to work out ways to share with those who don't agree with us and genuinely listen to their stories. We need to listen to Muslims and Jews and other Christians, peacemakers and patriots, to people in our own communities and country and to those in other parts of the world. We need to be open to learning from others, including those on our campus who've served in the military. We certainly ought not vilify individual soldiers who serve out of a sense of patriotism or religious obligation, nor think that we pacifists are any less complicit in the actions of our national leadership. Morally, we are all in this together. As part of this, we should at least commit ourselves to nonviolence in our personal lives, seeking to address conflicts with others in direct, honest, and loving ways. Third, we should recognize the dangers of the myth of redemptive violence. Redemptive violence is the belief that violence saves, that war makes peace, and that death brings life. Such a view is problematic in theory as well as in practice. A month after September 11th, 
Colonel Richard Dunn, former chief of the Army's internal think tank said, you can go and kill every one of their terrorists and hang bin Laden in front of the White House and you will not have solved the problem and you probably have created hundreds of new terrorists. So you could win tactically but lose strategically. By fall 2004, two years ago, the US Defense Department acknowledged that Iraqi bitterness was a greater threat to the US than the terrorism that purportedly prompted the US to attack Iraq. In a similar vein, a student in my liberation theologies class two years ago wrote, war never brings peace, only uncertainty and fear for the civilians left behind when the soldiers go home. The thing about war is no one really wins. We can say our military beat yours, but how many families will never be the same? How many children will be consumed by hate? What new enemy might spring forth from the rubble left in the wake of a passing army? Violence never brings about peace, it just brings more violence, and that, in my opinion, is the true legacy of war. The students' statements nearly moved me to tears, partly because she was not a Mennonite pacifist, but a 30-something Presbyterian and a veteran of the first Gulf War. She continued, I've not only seen oppression, but through my military service, I've been an oppressor. I have many conflicting feelings about the role I played in the first Gulf War. On the one hand, I wanted to help save lives, yet in the process of doing so, I was taking lives, taking freedoms, and taking hope from those very people I so longed to help. Fourth, we should challenge our nation to end its reliance on violence to solve problems and call for more international awareness and creativity. As one sage put it, if your only tool is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Christian peacemakers hope the US and other countries can work at the roots of terrorism, poverty and gross economic disparity, the arrogance of nations, imperialism, exploitation, injustice, rather than react only militarily. As a nation, we must pay attention to the causes of terrorism as much as the terrorism itself. Following the Apostle Paul's directive to Romans 12, we cannot destroy evil with evil, but must seek to overcome it with good. As peacemaker Ron Crable wrote in a recent issue of Mennonite Weekly Review, if we can get to the point when ordinary people all over the world know that America makes their lives better with clean water, health education, jobs, and a say in their own future, the appeal of terrorism will be limited. If we are creative and generous, said Crable, we can make it difficult for hatred to spread to others. The goodwill of our global neighbors will bring us more security in the long run than all the guns and bombs we could ever accumulate. For decades, the US has been last among the industrialized nations in the percentage of its federal budget and gross national product that we contribute for humanitarian aid to other countries. We give less than 1% of our budget and one-tenth of a percent of our gross national product to foreign aid. In 2005, we earmarked for international aid $10.9 billion, a tiny fraction of what we spent on warfare. To put it another way, what we give annually in total foreign aid would run the Iraq war for about three weeks. And much of that $10.9 billion never made its way into the hands of nationals in other countries 
Instead, it went to US-based companies who provided services overseas. Overall, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars have cost the US more than the sum needed to pay off the debts of every poor nation on Earth. What if, as a nation, we could become known for our humanitarian generosity rather than our military-industrial complex? Fifth, we should seek out the truth and hold our military, political, and media leaders responsible for basic honesty and integrity. U.S. Americans often are in the dark about the extent of the casualties of our military actions, especially now that we're several years into the war with Iraq. By now, the number of Afghanis and Iraqis killed in the ongoing war is between 30 and 60 times the number of Americans killed in the September 11th tragedy. It depends on whose figures you believe, but the lower end is about 30 times the number killed on that day five years ago. At a minimum, we need to believe some of the alternative and even mainstream news accounts about the stew of disinformation, deception, and disrepute brewing among some of our senior political officials. Being knowledgeable about our country's actions is part of good citizenship. And as President Theodore Roosevelt said, to announce that there must be no criticism of the president or that we are to stand by the president right or wrong is not only unpatriotic and servile, but is morally treasonable to the American public. This isn't about being a Democrat or Republican, conservative or progressive, but about making independent moral judgments. Sixth, we should live responsibly by reducing our consumption of the world's resources. We need to model a lifestyle that needs less defending by our military. Our standard of living that demands a disproportionate share of the world's resources increases our perceived need for a military to protect us. As conscientious Christians, we ought to voluntarily reduce our consumption of oil and other goods so that our calls for justice in other parts of the world have integrity. And seventh, finally, we should serve our brothers and sisters at home and around the world. For those unwilling to participate in warfare for conscientious reasons, we need to work to find contemporary moral equivalents to the sacrifices of war. We should encourage all who believe in peace to participate in a one-year or multi-year service assignment at home or overseas through one of the many faithful church agencies or through other worthwhile humanitarian organizations around the world. In short, pacifist Christians can be good U.S. citizens in a conflict-ridden time by being faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, impassioned peacemakers, and hospitable friends to those we perceive as the other, whether they are our nation's leaders, our Muslim sisters and brothers, or our flag-hoisting neighbors. In a complex 21st century world, conscientious Christians can be good citizens by giving our first allegiance to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. We can live our lives in ways that are faithful to the gospel, and we can share Christ's message of peace in a world often drawn to violence. Such a way of life is faithful to Jesus' teachings and that may be sufficient, but it also is a way of being that, we can humbly hope, is as relevant in a violence-prone world as our alternative responses. More than 70 years ago, long before there was a war on terror, Lloyd Stone wrote, This is my song, to the to tune of composer Jean Sibelius's Finlandia. The tune is number 73, Be Still My Soul in Our Red Hymnals, 
And in closing, we'll hear Stone's 1934 version sung by Harmonious Combustion. This is my song, O God of all the nations, a song of peace for lands of Thank you, Keith. 
We'll now take a few minutes for some open discussion or questioning and response time. If you can just make your way to the microphones if you want to make a comment or ask a question of Keith. And we just ask that you direct your questions to Keith and not to other students making comments. And we don't have a whole lot of time, but Keith is willing to stay afterwards to respond to anyone else who'd like to talk with him. So feel free to come to these two mics here. Um, Keith, I found myself really resonating with a lot of what you had to say and um, tried to try to think about why I was um, finding myself nodding my head. And I realized this is largely in part due to the community that I was shaped by, and that was one that was um, very skeptical of patriotism. And I'm wondering if you think that there's one or two key lessons that this less patriotic, patriotic community can glean about faith and living in general from those who, um, who are more patriotic. That's a, a very good question, Morgan. I, I hope that some of that was at least implicit, if not explicit, in what I said. Uh, it's, it's wonderful for us to be committed and loyal and uh, have allegiance uh, to various things in our lives. And that's one thing we learn from people, I think, who have grown up in more patriotic contexts, more patriotic settings. The idea that we, we love and care for our country and are appreciative of it, uh, the notion that we are grateful for our leaders and pray for them and hope for the best for them is also a part that we can learn from people, I think, from more patriotic uh, context. I'm going to stop there just to allow for time. Thank you. It's a good question. I'll allow time in case anyone else wants to, to speak or ask a question. If there are others who would like to talk with Keith personally, he's open to that, and the rest of you are dismissed. <laughs> <laughs>